It is very family focused. The crowd of an AFLW match is so vastly different to an AFLM game. Nicole Hayes is an author, and a few years ago, she and a couple of other women, all keen AFL fans, started a podcast called The Outer Sanctum. It was very on the spot and very unplanned. Uh, There was wine. Um, and there was, <laughs> it started as a friendship group that came out of uh, the first novel I wrote, which was um, about a teenage girl obsessed with football uh, and just her inability to safely navigate an AFL space in the 1980s of Melbourne. And it was aspects of it were, were based on my own experience. We got talking and we made, you know, just established an online friendship group, really. The group was often frustrated by who got to talk about the big issues in sport. The stuff that had the potential to make the game unite people or drive a wedge between different groups. We continue to be frustrated by conversations that the football media were having about women, people of colour, Indigenous uh, footballers, families that, um, you know, sporting families or the, the partners of players and how no one with those lived experiences were included in that conversation and it was really frustrating to us one thing we thought we could do is start talking about it and you know basically a a bottle of wine and a very nice meal later we were did our first show the rest as they say is history that was 2016 and the following year the afl launched a national women's comp the aflw it is children driven it is diverse, it is safe, it is carnival-like, it's fun, it doesn't feel fraught like um, the men's game can sometimes feel. And that's something, you know, that's natural and organic. You can't force that. That's happened because of the, you know, the community, the players themselves, their, their own stories, but also just the way that it has come from the groundswell. It wasn't a thing that was imposed on the people, it was driven by the people. And when we're allowed to, you know, celebrate women's sport, allowed to participate on that level, it's kind of amazing what we can do and how different it can be. I, I just see them as different sports in some ways. They're both football, but they're different kinds of football. And I am completely okay with that because I do think the women's game and the the audiences, the crowd, the community offers something sometimes that I find better and more satisfying, to be honest, than the men's. What is it about sport? It can be both wholesome and invigorating. It can give kids the confidence to do so much more than just kick a ball. And it can bring together people whose nations have been in literal wars against each other for decades. Sport is a powerful unifier, except when it isn't. This is Seriously Social, I'm Ginger Gorman. And well, this is a social science podcast, not a sport podcast. So when we look at the great ways that sport brings us together, we can't help but weigh them against the ways that it divides us. When I think about my own relationship to sport as you know, something of a player of some not great distinction, but uh, <laughs> at times, a bit older, but as a spectator. Professor David Rowe is a prolific writer on sports, media, popular culture and the politics of sport. 
He's an emeritus professor of the Institute for Culture and Society, Western Sydney University, and a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. I'm from the far west country of England, and I was taken to my local football club, Plymouth Argyle, by my dad when I was about five. Now, this is a club that's existed since 1886. It's never won anything of any great distinction. But, you know, I carry a torch for it today when I go back. And I I, I kind of relieve my childhood sometimes, you know, going to the stadium. And that's where I get you, know, you get a sense of place, a sense of you know, a particular kind of community. It's an amazing experience, one that I know well firsthand from going to AFL games in Melbourne. But sport can also be divisive, and I'm not just talking about fans of opposing teams. I'm talking about people from opposing cultures or regimes. Sport can get really, really political. Sport is, is a vehicle for, say, sectarianism around religion. For example, if you go, I don't know if you've ever been to a Glasgow Celtic versus Glasgow Rangers, there you can see the strong vestiges of sectarianism, Catholic versus Protestant, Irish Catholics versus Scottish Protestants, and so on. People like to talk about the famous 1969 soccer war or football war between Honduras and San Salvador, El Salvador, sorry, which happened after a World Cup qualifier. It was actually provoked. Um, you know, it was the, uh, the kind of catalyst for an actual 100-day war. Thankfully, Australian sport isn't quite so political, although it definitely has been a vehicle for political statements. Take the reaction to Cathy Freeman's victory lap at the 2000 Olympics. After she won gold in the 400 metres, she carried both the Australian and Aboriginal flags through the stadium. It was a symbol of reconciliation, progress and pride, but yet some still saw it as an insult. Nevertheless, Australia is often described as a great sporting nation or a nation of sports lovers. Our Prime Ministers love the cricket and the footy. Victorians get a public holiday for the AFL Grand Final and another one for the Melbourne Cup. Our love of a sport unites us. Every single Australian is sports mad, aren't we? It is a strong mythology and it's so strong that uh, if you want to become an Australian citizen and you get a, a document uh, to, to enable you to kind of bone up on what life is like in Australia. And it's called Australia uh, Common Bond. And, <laughs> and it tells you that Australia is a nation of good sports. So officially, the Australian government says it, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade says it's in its documentation. So there's this idea that there's something almost uniquely Australian about an attachment to sport, that everybody loves it, everybody plays it. When the Australian national team is playing, everybody supports that team. Everyone has a local team that they support and they uh, they support sport across many areas. This is a really problematic idea in a way, the idea that sport creates us as a community. In your work, what do you believe about the idea of community when it comes to sport or what do you understand? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always very sceptical about the term community as a singular noun because, I mean, we are members of many communities and uh, they don't all fit neatly in with each other. Often they're in conflict. 
So I, I don't see sport as a community to which we all must be members of. I think that is oppressive. I think you know, at its best, it can be a community resource. Uh, it can be a lot of fun. It brings people together in various ways. It can also divide them in various ways. So I think that it's not compulsory to like sport or participate in sport in Australia, even though it seems like that some of the time. What I would say is that sport is a social and cultural resource, which, if used properly, can enhance life. But if you don't like sport and it doesn't mean anything to you, or you get sick to death of it dominating the uh, the media, the news media at particular times, such as you know when there's Olympic Games or something, then you have every right to do so, and you also have the right to be critical of it rather than just accept it as a as a package, and one is not allowed to, uh, you know, to criticise this sacred institution. While heaps of Aussies love watching sport on telly, going to a match, keeping up with news about results and players and clubs and coats, when it comes to participation, we are much more likely to go to the gym than join a local touch or netball team. Most Australian adults are not regularly active in sport. Uh, if you're talking about regular sport participation, that is organised sport in Australia, amongst adults, it's about a fifth of the population. It's roughly one in five. So it's not it's not huge. More men than women. There is those who are, will go along to a stadium and actually pay to watch it. About half of the population, about around 50% of adults, because uh, we only surveyed adults. But approaching 90% experience sport through the media, specifically television. So as adults, even if we played club sports as kids, we're not likely to keep it up in an official way. But what about those of us who throw a frisbee at the park with friends or join a local running group or a spin class? We're being active. We're part of a community. Is that sport? This is why a lot of what you hear about sport and physical activity uh, in Australia, the stats are you know, often very unreliable because uh, you know, I make the distinction between sport as rationalised physical play with rules and so on and clubs and associations and all that. And, um, you know, that's really uh, only a, a minor part of the total physical culture. Pick up games in, uh, of sport, you know, where people just assemble at a park and have a, you know, a bit of a kick around or play basketball. I mean, basketball, you might, might recall, kind of started out, you know, in the YMCAs of, uh, of, of, um, of North America and in the streets of the street game. Um, uh, but they, you know, they, 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 in the end, they become sportified. This is, this is a, a concept which is used in, in sociology, that that a physical cultural practice, we would say, a ritual, a folk, some folk play like football, um, becomes in modernity, uh, industrialism, capitalism, urbanisation, and so on. Then that creates this institution called sport, which is regular and regulated, and then it has this marriage made in heaven with the media whereupon they become codependent uh, because you don't therefore have to play or to go to a, physically go to a stadium to be part of the sport experience. And uh, they both make a lot of money off each other and get a lot of attention out of it. And, uh, and there you go. That's where we've ended up in the 21st century. 
David says it's almost impossible to conceive of sport today without thinking about the media. Why is that? David says it's infiltrating every part of our culture and society. Even really, if you're just looking at kids playing sport in the, in the park, you no, notice that you know they're picking up gestures. Where do they get those gestures from? Those movements. Sometimes, where do they get that language from? Oh, hello, <laughs> that was from from the media. Um, so even at that grassroots level, the media is important. But of course, the the dominant uh, economic force in sport is the media. It's the, it's the largest source of revenue for most professional sports, and you know, some of us, you know, we use these kind of synthetic concepts. Uh, a colleague of mine, in the United States, Lawrence Wenner, coined the term media sport, all one word. I kind of try to patent a, a concept I call the media sports cultural complex, which reveals how how sport insinuates itself into all, you know, virtually all areas of social and cultural life. It's unavoidable, it's, you know, as, as many people who don't like sport will tell you. And that influence of sport, the media's influence on sport, uh, which we some also, you know, we love to jargon terms like media, mediatization, um, it, it, it's actually in, in, uh, in representing a form of culture and society in the media. You're changing it at the same time. And you're changing also the wider culture. And I'll just give one other example for people. If you if you think what's keeping free to air television alive at the moment, it's live sport, it's uh, television and current affairs, and it's competitive reality television shows, which are sport-like. They, in other words, reality shows are imitating sport. They have outcome uncertainty. They have liveness. They have characters: good, bad, evil, <laughs> um, noble. All those features. In some way, you could say that sport in the media has infiltrated other areas of the media as well as the wider society. He mentioned earlier that sport and the media have a match made in heaven, but David believes it's a troubled marriage. You know, there's something obviously in it for both of them, um, largely huge amounts of capital and uh, attention. But it is troubling and it's hard to imagine that, but there was a time when there was quite a lot of mutual suspicion about sport and television you know, it was mutual that is that sport quite quite legitimately was worried that if people are slobbing around at home they're not going to get get off their butts and go and uh, and pay at the stadium well we've seen it you know especially around the pandemic when sports uh, events were cancelled or were played uh, without crowds so you had media companies saying, well, look, why are we paying all this money? You know, a huge amount of money, broadcast rights. You know, the AFL's just got $4.5 billion for a seven-year deal, including, might I say, you know, contra, you know, not, not, non-money side to it. But, you know, why are we paying um, all this money for this content that may not, ha- you know, pan out in the way that we hope? Well, sports might be saying, well, hang on, well, you know, we've got this paymaster, Television, but it's making all these demands. When we play, how we play, you know, we we can't have those endless Grand Slam matches that you know go on for five hours and so on. So um, let's bring in tie breaks, uh, put in ad breaks in you know in basketball games. Let's try and speed things up. Let's get in the faces of uh, sports people so we can get the reality experience. 
The media attention and the commercialization of sport comes with great scrutiny. Some fans will still blindly defend their team or their code through any controversy, and there are always controversies. But others, like Nicole Hayes, really grapple with the issues that put sport on the front page of the paper instead of at the back. Issues like homophobia, racism and sexism. I am uh, in a constant state of flux where it's concerned one minute I'm heartened and the next I'm really disappointed. And it it can feel um, impossible sometimes because these very big revelations expose what you believe to be um, an improved situation and, and expose it for something quite different. Um, I think, again, not doing the Pollyanna, but just finding a way through what we should be heartened by and be able to recognise as positive is the fact that these issues are exposed at all whereas once they weren't, and secondly, that the response is often quite swift now. Instead of months and months of, you know, is it racist, is it sexist? I don't think it is. You know, we just have to go back to the Adam Goods situation uh, to, you know, it was only 2014, I think it was 2013-14, to see how far we've come in that time where the response is quite swift. The organisations do not want to be attached to that label um, and even if it is a, a PR exercise, in the end, it does drive change. Um, and, you know, not having to waste the energy to convince them it's wrong is something of value. You know, it means that the energy can be spent by those people agitating for change to improve the situation, to expand and and to consider it, you know, is this a situation that's a one-off or is this systemic? And then to uh, um, take broader approaches to then ask the question, is this a situation, you know, is this occurring just in one club or is this just occurring in one year or do we need to go wider? Do we need to look harder? So I find that uh, encouraging and it's also vastly different to how it was only a few years ago. But, you know, sport is a microcosm of society and it is in some ways um, a very unique and specialised one, but it's also quite emblematic of a greater society as well. So with the good comes the bad and nothing is sort of foolproof, I don't think. What impact do you think female sports commentators and reporters have had? I think it's forced the rest of the more established mainstream media to think about how they conduct themselves publicly, how they respond to some of these issues. Um you know, the defensiveness when there were, were concerns about sexism or, or, you know, allegations about racism, those sorts of things. There w- it wasn't that long ago that the instinct was to be defensive um, and to kind of nothing to see here. Whereas I do think by diversifying, inevitably, there are people who have been at the wrong end of that, those situations, and we're better at identifying it and we're better at talking about it and it forces the rest of the, you know, the power brokers, the people who have been there a long time to be a bit more mindful in how they approach these conversations. So I genuinely believe it's changed the landscape of how we talk about sport. I know that there have been uh, missteps and there have been embarrassments, but once again, the reaction to those embarrassments and those missteps have been has been quite swift. Scandals are another way that sport can unite or divide fans. 
And let's face it, fans are a powerful collective whichever side they come down on. Here's Professor David Rowe again. I think that fans do have an ethical responsibility to intervene in sport where you know things are going on in the name of sport, sometimes in their names as fans. And in fact, I would argue that in many places, many sports, many countries, innovations, progressive innovations, have actually come from the fans, not from the sports. Uh, as I say, because because sport is so image conscious, it's about public relations, it's about about good rep and that kind of thing, covering things up. It's often been fan groups who said, look, we're not going to put up with racism. The Kick It Out movement, for example, in football, came from fans, really, rather than, than football clubs. And uh, you could say exactly the same about homophobia uh, and all kinds of other areas where, where active fan groups took an ethical stance um, because of the vacuum that was created in many sports organisations. So David is a sceptic, and I'll be honest, so am I. But I've definitely seen sport unite people in beautiful ways. I went to a Recklink match the other day, and for those people who don't know, this is where musicians play the journalists, and the idea is to raise money for very wonderful programs in public housing. And now these games are chaos, David. Lots of people have never played AFL before, you know, and there's sausages and there's bands. And it was just the most wonderful, hilarious feeling. The community feel there was absolutely beautiful. And it made me wonder, is the commercialization of sport and this very distasteful in a lot of cases relationship that it has with the media and with big business pushing people back into community sport and back towards perhaps a more wholesome idea of community and sport? Yeah, and and sport um, isn't isn't necessarily at the centre of that. It's just a, a, a means to an end. Thanks for listening to Seriously Social. I'm Gigi Gorman. The podcast is produced by Kim Lester, engineered by Mark Gargledonk, aka Baldy, and this episode was executive produced by Bonnie Johnson and Claire McHugh. It's an initiative of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. Seriously Social is produced on Ngunnawal, Turrbal and Yagara country, and we want to pay our respects to elders past and present. Now to a podcast we'd love to recommend. The We Society podcast, hosted by the author and journalist Will Hutton and brought to you by the UK Academy of Social Sciences. As the institutions and structures that have underpinned Britain and the world quiver before unprecedented pressures, Will explores with a unique range of experts the roots of what is going on and how best we can together respond. The topical issues in the second series range from Russia's invasion of the Ukraine with Sir Lawrence Friedman to how a stressed NHS can sustain Britain's health with Professor Linda Bald. This is a must listen for all of us trying to get to grips with the magnitude of today's challenges, concerned about our society and looking for insight and hope. You can listen to The We Society now wherever you get your podcasts.